This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Phillies Backstage. Tom Burgoyne, along with partner John Brazier. Hello, John. Tom, how you doing? Good. You know, we talked about uh, getting right into it with our guest today. We're very, we're both very excited about this guest. Very excited. You know, we uh, know him very well. I don't know if I ever told you, John, uh, and I don't know if I ever we ever talked about this on the podcast. But growing up, I wanted to be a sports writer. I did not know yes. that. So in eighth grade at Immaculate Conception School in Jacontown, uh, we had a yearbook. And it's you, funny. It you was conceived a, of this notion. <laughs> it was a, a yearbook. It's pretty funny. It was like a mimeographed, like stapled, you know, 20 pages stapled together. It was nothing fancy. But they said, where are you going to be in 10 years? And, I was, and I, my answer was, I'm going to be the beat writer for the Philadelphia Phillies and the Inquirer. Yeah, there you have it. And then I took some writing course. I mean, I was like, you know, really into it. And then this, you know, friend of the best friend of the Philly fanatic (laughs) came out. So, uh, so there you go. So we're very excited to have uh, Phillies inside a friend PC Sports Philadelphia, Jim Salisbury. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Tom and John. And to hear you tell that story, Tom, I don't know if you will recall this, but many years ago, I actually had a casual conversation with you. When I was, you know, I am the sports writer that you aspired to be a sports writer, but I'm a big fanatic fan. And I actually had a conversation with you one time about the possibility of me being the fanatic for a day and writing a story about it. You, you, think it was a you mean the fanatic's because, best friend, Jim, of course, right? <laughs> no, I wanted to be, you know, dressed up. Yeah, I had a conversation with the best friend about dressing up and maybe writing a story about it. But the best friend had a... He, he was skeptical because of the credibility issue. So, uh, <laughs> you, you, know, you had aspirations, but you, you've, uh, I had my own aspirations that, we, uh, you know, um, included green fur. So there you go. <laughs> a little role reversal. And you know, Jim, we had, uh, you know, Murph was on last year as a guest, and we talked about the story when Dave Raymond left, uh, you know, back in 1993, we had auditions, and Murph auditioned to be the Philly Fanatic. Did you know that? I didn't. I did not know. That's awesome. Isn't That's that awesome? Story. I didn't know that. Yep, yep. Wow. So, so Jim, wait, so Jim, I could... Want, every, every, <laughs> I, I could have been your judge because I started in 94. So that's right when they were looking for uh, the uh, second best friend of the fanatic. <laughs> and so one of my first jobs, I came from corporate America, five years in corporate America. And my first job with the Phillies was being part of a panel that would judge uh, these people that would get, that would be out of the suit and then be in the suit. And they're dancing, doing the belly womp, doing all this. And I'm sitting there scratching my head going, I can't believe I just left a <laughs> legitimate job for this absolutely ridiculous. You're like, Simon Cowell. Yes, yeah, so you could you could have been Jim Salisbury could have been a contestant, uh, and I could have been the judge. That would have been our first interaction. 
Well, you, you you probably made the right call because, you know, when you're sitting there on deadline up in the press box and, you know, uh, the Phillies have a five to four lead and your story is ready to go and you're ready to push the button and people in the office are waiting for it because uh, the deadline is tight. And then all of a sudden the closer starts to teeter and the other team starts rallying. And now you have to rewrite 750 words in Oh, about four minutes of pure hell. Uh, you probably made the, the right Right well, I, I would say at that point, Jim, I'm already at home uh, with my feet up and yeah. watching Sports Center. So, you know, uh, you hey, you know, I, I, John and I, you know, we want to talk to you about your career a little bit. And, you know, I'm, I, just because I was aspiring sports writer, you know, I'm always fascinated with uh, the life of uh, you and, and what you do, Jim. It's, it's incredible to me and, and the output and, you know, the quality, all that. Uh, but I was thinking of you last night watching that game at Fenway Park, knowing that you're a New England guy from, uh, I guess, Rhode Island, um, and and watching that game, you know, what's going through your mind watching a an empty uh, Fenway, and and how disappointed are you that you know uh, you know you're not making the trip this year to to Fenway? Yeah, I mean, I miss being on the road with the team. Um, it, it's totally different watching a game in person than it is on TV, and the analogy I give is probably a writer's analogy you know when you do a story on someone a feature on someone you can get them on the phone and talk to them and write something half decent but it, you know it, it, in, in no way does it compare to the the quality of the story or the quality of the interview um that you do uh, that you get when you conduct a face-to-face interview so um you know you can see a person's mannerisms and expressions and and you get all that nuance. And there's a there's an analogy about being in the ballpark and watching the game as opposed to watching it on TV. You can't really look in the dugout, see who's having conversations with each other. You know, you can't get the head start with the binoculars, look out in the bullpen. Uh, you can't watch a guy's mannerisms in the uh, on-deck circle. There's a lot you miss uh, not being in the ballpark. Fortunately, we are in the ballpark for the home game. Um, very different uh, having it so quiet. One of the one of the things I really enjoy about the no fans in the ballpark is hearing Bryce Harper slide. It is incredible with the level of aggressiveness. He goes into a base head first um, with, uh, you can hear his body scraping across the infield dirt as he dives into second base. In fact, you could hear it last night on TV in Fenway park late in that game. And he got up and looked at his hand. There was like an abrasion on it. That's how, um, the impact he hits the ground with. So it's kind of neat to hear the body of Bryce Hopper, Roman Quinn also last night, these guys sliding into bases. Uh, the other night when Quinn uh, slid into, dove into home plate um, with that winning run, uh, it was really nice, really neat to kind of hear it, not just be overwhelmed by the crowd as much as you miss the crowd. So there is, there is those different perspectives, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up going to Fenway Park. It's, it's, it's a cauldron, you know. Uh, it's like Citizens Bank Park was uh, from 07 to 2012. You know, every night is just, you know, loaded with electricity. And I even asked Joe Girardi about that after the game last night because he played up there with the Yankees. He managed the Yankees. And, um, you know, Joe Kerrigan, the old uh, Red Phillies pitching coach and Red Sox manager, once described Fenway – to me as every game is uh, St. Joe's Villanova at the cluster. That's pretty cool. So uh, not having the fans, it's totally different. Hopefully we'll get a vaccine and the fans will be back before we know it. 
Yeah, it's it, Fen, Fenway, Wrigley, you know, some of the obviously historic ballparks. I tell you what, I, I went to, I was lucky enough to go to two of the um, iconic games. The one, the All-Star game, I'm sure you were probably up there too, Jim. And Tom, mm, I'm not I was there, when sure. Ted Williams, 1999. Ted Williams was surrounded in his wheelchair at home plate with all the players. Uh, that was awesome. Although my seat was, I was, I was in a corner and I think I was blocked by a foul pole or, um, and the other one I was at, um, and I didn't see it because I didn't see the moment because everyone stood up at the exact same time. But when Pedro, um, took down Don Zimmer, had it like took him right by the head and slammed him down. And right when that happened, I guess there was a little melee and everyone jumped up ahead of us. It wasn't until afterwards when I was at a place called Daisy Buchanan's where I could see the uh, replay that I could see what actually happened. But uh, yeah, Fenway definitely has a lot of I, cool memories. Both of those games you mentioned, John, I was at both of those games covering them for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Now, that uh, All-Star game was 99, I believe. It was Schilling Pedro, right? And they were the starting pitchers, I believe. And they were both thrown about 105. It was incredible. Um, the home run derby the night before with McGuire hitting them like onto Mass Turnpike was incredible. And then that game you mentioned where, where Zimmer went after um, went after Pedro, I was sitting in like in the third row of the press box, and for some reason I picked up Zimmer immediately out of out of my you know vision, and I could see him running around the pack towards like the backstop to go after Pedro, and I'm like, <laughs> where the heck is he going? And then and then you know all that happens and. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to tell this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Like the late, great John Vukovic, who, you know, is one of the greatest men I ever met in my life. And I'm sure you guys uh, know what I'm talking about. Just a great man. He worked for Don Zimmer in Chicago, very tight with Don Zimmer. They were great friends. I I left, uh, I, I tried calling Vukovic right after that happened. I, I didn't get, I left him a voicemail saying, hope you're watching this game. This is crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I covered. I remember after that game, Don Zimmer was in tears. He was uh, apologizing and, and whatnot. It was it was uh, crazy. But I, you know, I remember as a kid, fifth home run. I remember watching that game on uh, October twenty first of nineteen seventy five. Um, Yaz was my favorite player. I remember his last game in October of eighty three. Um, I remember the first game I went there in the early 70s. I remember Gary Peters was the pitcher for the Red Sox. He was finishing up his career. And then years later, I was covering the Phillies, and I asked Jim Fregosi one day, I said, who's the best pitch, uh, best hitting pitcher you ever saw? And he said, Gary Peters. And I always remembered that name because he pitched uh, the first game I ever went to at, at Fenway Park. So, But I've been in Philly now like 27 years, and, 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 and this is home. And I love it here. And I love Citizens Bank Park. I, I love the view we have from the press box of Center City. I love the amenities of Citizens Bank Park. I get a charge every time I'm, I take the right onto Patterson Ave coming off the, uh, coming off the 95 when I see the lights with the, with the maroon color, color, colored seal of Citizens Bank Park. Every time I see the lights, I get a charge. Um, same charge I used to get as a kid when my father used to make a left at, uh, He'd make a left at Symphony Hall in Boston to go over to Mass, off of Mass Ave, and then the lights at Fenway Park would appear. So I still get a charge whenever I see the lights at a ballpark. Uh, and um, it's funny you mentioned Fenway, and I have a lot of family up there, and we talk about this all the time, and, and they cherish Fenway. It's like a cathedral, but I always tell them, you know, Fenway's uncomfortable. You're jammed in there. You get under a roof on a hot day. You get down that right field line. There's a lot of bad seats. And I always tell them, 
if you guys built a Citizens Bank Park in Boston somewhere, you know, maybe recreate the dimensions, but have like something beautiful like Citizens Bank Park or something like Pittsburgh or San Francisco or San Diego, build one of these modern parks. I, I think you'd all step away and say, gosh, we love Fenway. Uh, we revered Fenway, uh, give it its proper place, but this new place is pretty darn special. Well, Jim, also, I went to the Winter Classic. I forgot the Winter Classic that was at Fenway, and it was absolutely freezing. And I remember we were uh, had great seats. I think James Taylor sang the uh, national anthem. Great seats, but the problem was you were bu- everyone was bundled because it was, you know, 20 degrees. And you're jammed into those, as you know, those seats are not very big and they jam everything in. So you're basically, you're, you're, stu- you're shoulder to shoulder with somebody and you're layered up. I didn't want to, and because of the bathrooms, hey, there's not a lot of them too. It's, you know, they're, they're small rooms. Uh, I didn't want to miss like tw- 10, 15 minutes of the game by going to the bathroom. So yeah. I didn't, I didn't drink a beer at the game because I didn't want to have to go to the bathroom to miss like half the game of why you went up there. So it's uh Fenway is awesome, but there is, uh, there's obviously some challenges. Well, Jim, you're, you're right. Um, I always think the same thing if they had a Fenway, but with the modern amenities. And I remember being up at Fenway and there was a guy out, out in front and he was trying to get people to sign a petition to save Fenway because I think they were, you know, starting some of the renovations. Maybe they were thinking about, I don't know, another ballpark or, you know, save Fenway. But I, I was like, why isn't everybody rushing up to sign this guy's petition? And, and people lived up there like, yeah, no, you know, we're, Fenway's great and everything and it's great for visitors. But for us, it's, it, to come to a game is just uncomfortable comfortable you right. know? and you can meet louis yeah. tion too yeah, yeah it, it, these new hey, though wrigley is great fenway is great uh, dodger stadium i still love dodger stadium it's the third oldest park in the majors but it's still very comfortable and they, it's still filled with modern amenities and it's still picturesque yeah um but you know hey i love the new ballpark i love and i'm a i'm a i'm a traditionalist you know i'm a purist i'm a traditionalist but i do love I love the new ballpark. You know, I, I can't wait to get down to Texas to see the new one down there. Um, you know, I, I've been around long enough that I've covered games in three of them now in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, I, do, I do love the new ballpark. And Citizens Bank Park is just – it's a great place uh, to, to watch a game and, and to go to every night. I get, I, get, uh, I get excited every time I walk through the door. How did it come about that you first came to Philadelphia, Jim? I know you worked at the Inquirer, and that was your first job down here, but how did that all come about? Well, I I grew up wanting to be a sports writer. Um, You know, baseball and hockey were the games in our house. My father was a high school baseball coach for many years in in New England, and, uh, you know, he was a teacher. My mother was a big uh, reader. She just devoured newspapers and books. So in our house, we had a lot of hockey talks and a lot of baseballs and a lot of books. So it was kind of like words and baseball. I, I think I gravitated toward that, uh, and my you know love love of baseball. And I, I like my mother. I really loved the newspapers. Loved reading them. I used to read the newspaper every day on my hands and knees in the living room. And I think maybe by osmosis, I taught myself to write a newspaper story a little bit. And uh, you know, wanted to make that uh, the route uh, that I wanted to go and. You know, I was lucky enough to start uh, get a job covering the Pawtucket Red Sox, AAA team of the Red Sox. I covered them for six years, and then I got a job covering the Phillies down here in the suburbs. And um, now, then, you know, I went to New York, actually, to cover the Yankees uh, for one year, 1996, for the New York Post. 
And, uh, you know, that was a real awakening for me. It opened my eyes because New York is just, I mean, it's crazy the way those writers compete and the, the intensity of covering baseball in New York is really something. And it was uh, a real education for me. Uh, I mean, it was Joe Girardi's first year with the Yankees. who was a catcher on that World Series team. Derek Dieter's first, um, his rookie season. And I always tell the story, one of my favorite baseball stories, I covered Derek Jeter before he became Derek Jeter, before he became, you know, this larger-than-life and very protective and private guy. You know, he was a rookie in, in 96, and uh, I was doing, like, a background story on him and talking a little bit about his family, and he was talking about his dad. I said, hey, can I get your dad's number? I want to call him up and, and maybe talk to him. So he gave me his dad's number, no problem. That would have never happened a couple of years later, but so – uh, I didn't get around to the story right away, but so in November, Jeter was going to win the Rookie of the Year. It was going to be hands down. And the announcement was going to be on a Tuesday. So for the Sunday paper, I was going to do a big look at Derek Jeter. And I, so I decided, hey, I got his father's number. I'm going to call his father. Talked to the dad. He was great about the kid's background and about how always being the playing in the major leagues, the draft process, how he was also a great hoop player. Um and uh, how, you know, he was born in New Jersey, always a Yankee fan. How would a dream come true was to watch his son play for the Yankees. And so his dad's name was Charles. And Charles at one point says, hey, my wife would like, to, would like to talk to you. I'm like, great, you know. Actually turning out to be a really fun interview. So um, Derek Jeter's mother gets on the phone. Again, I don't think any of this happened, you know, a few years down the road. But it's 1996, and he's kind of a wide-eyed kid. So his mom tells me, you know, Derek always seemed to play for the Yankees, and she said to watch him play shortstop um, behind Dwight Gooden the night Dwight Gooden pitched his no-hitter. She said, I had to pinch myself because when Derek was in middle school and high school, he used to come in our bedroom every night and imitate Dwight Gooden's pitching <laughs> delivery in the full-length mirror in our bedroom to the point where we had to say, Derek, please get out of here and go to bed. We need to go to bed. Stop imitating Dwight Gooden in the mirror. Get out of here. So, and now wow. he's playing behind Dwight Gooden. So I, I just love that that story about uh, how she told how you know how this kid went from dreaming to being in the big leagues like like we all did, right? Mm. Imitating Doc Gooden in the mirror, and now he's playing behind Doc Gooden. And um, it was a little slice into what made Derek Jeter tick uh, before he became kind of corporate Derek Jeter. Uh, before the the walls went up and he became very protective of his privacy, understandably so in the world we live in. But um, being, you know, being a sports writer and, and covering baseball as long as I have, those are still my favorite stories. Um, as much as I love the game, I love the human element and the human stories, getting to know people, you know, watching Charlie Manuel come to Philly as an unpopular hire, getting kicked around like an old football and then, you know, five years later, riding down Broad Street, and now he's, you know, he's up like with Bernie Perrant, it's like yeah. one of the most popular all-time sports figures in town. So those type of human stories, I, I really, I really love. Hey, Jim, take us into, you know, when people see a sports writer or a sportscaster or someone that covers the team, 
uh, for a major news station, you know, they, they say, wow, it's got to be great to be Jim Salisbury. He calls into, you know, WIP. He's on, you know, before the games, uh, giving, giving uh, in-depth reports. But there's also the, a tough part of the job as far as, you know, you mentioned, you know, at the top of the show that you're writing a story. You think the story's over during the game. And then, the, as you said, the closer starts getting a little faulty. Next thing you know, you got to scrap everything you wrote because the whole tenor of the article is going to change. But also there's moments, I'm sure, that you've got to be in a press conference and you're you're with these guys every day and you have, you build relationships with these guys. Well, sometimes you get to write or say tough things about a certain player, or maybe it's a manager or a general manager. And yet you still need those guys for information down the road. So tell us about, you know, some of the more tough moments of your job and how you've got to kind of balance that. Cause again, everyone sees the positive sides and the upside, but there's a lot of tough times in your position. Yeah, there are. And hopefully, you know, the people you cover understand that, um, and hopefully you conduct yourself in uh, with fairness. I mean, that's always the goal. Uh, when something's good, say it's good. When something stinks, say it stinks. Uh, you know, it, it's never personal. You know, um, Reese Hoskins, he had a very, really difficult second half last year, difficult start to this season. Um, I have immense respect for Reese Hoskins as a person. He's one of the finest young men. That I, you know, to me that have come through here in my 27 years or so covering the team, really quality guy. Uh, but you know, you got to point out he's struggling. You got to point out maybe it's time for him to sit. You got to point out that if he doesn't get going, Alec Bohm might be a possibility at first. Uh, you know, I think a guy like Reese understands that because um, hopefully I've conducted myself with, with a level of, of, of fairness and, he, and it, it's just good, honest critique. You know, um, on the on the flip side. When you're critiquing, you're, you're also saying, wow, he had a huge bases loaded um, uh, double on Saturday night to help Kia win against the Mets. Wow, he had a huge home run last night to keep them in that game up at Fenway Park. So, you know, hopefully guys recognize uh, the fairness and all. Um, I personally thought that they needed to make a managerial change last year with Gabe Kapler, but never have that stopped me from saying that I have immense respect to Gabe as a person. He was one of the nicest smartest guys that I've ever encountered in baseball. I just didn't think it was going to work here. I thought they needed to make a change. So I think as long as you kind of, you know, keep it to the job and keep it to good, fair, honest critique, tell the good and the bad, um, you know, you, you, you at least put your best foot forward. You're at least doing your job the way you're supposed to. And if someone can't understand that's how you have to conduct yourself, then that's on them. You know, you can go to bed at night knowing that you fulfilled uh your the requirements of your job professionally and and fairly and that's you know that's always the goal that, that's always the goal for me have there been many guys or some guys that have held a grudge and they just can't let go because you said something negative about their performance or i'm sure yeah, there have oh yeah. been throughout the years oh yeah oh, oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> um, yeah i many many guys uh and they'll and then there's also other guys um that you know you've maybe locked horns with over the years but you know after they retire everything they'll tell you hey you were flat out right um there's you know when a guy's playing i think uh there's a pride factor there's um you know there's the desire to just stay in the game and you know i think when guys maybe get out of the game they take a more honest reflection of where they were at that point and they shrug and say you know you were right but at the time Certain things might sting, but you know, I never try to get personal. Never try to keep keep it on and, and get cheap. You know, you, n- you never want to be cheap. Um, 
you just want to kind of say it fairly and, and, and here's what's the deal. But yeah, I mean, uh, I can think of many, many players who held grudges, probably still do some that got over it. I can think of coaches that held grudges. Um, it's just, you know, Hey, uh, it, it's tough to be criticized. Uh, it's tough to be critiqued in the public eye. It's tough to have that type of job where you're in the fishbowl all the time, where all your pluses and minuses, your, your beauty marks and your uh, warts are being, are being exposed. And I, you know, I, I tell this to young players all the time. I, you know, I'm not sure that I could deal with having a posse of five or six sports writers follow me around the country chronicling everything I do. I could certainly deal with the backpats, but I don't know if I could deal with, um, uh, you know, the rough spots and the critiques and the tough questions. So it takes the mental toughness on, on their part to deal with it. Um, and there's a lot of guys who, who can take it. You know, closers, you know, Brad Lidge, uh, had a dream year in 08. He had a very difficult year in 09, almost like a nightmare year. Uh, he was the same guy in his dealings with the press, uh, when he was having the storybook year, when he was having the nightmare year. Um, many, many others. Uh, He's one of the best I've like ever that. dealt with, Brad Lidge. I mean, that yeah. year, that tough year, he he took that post game interview every time, no matter if he blew a you know four run lead or uh, I mean, he he literally was he stood up like a man, and and I have the utmost yeah, respect for like, him. It, you know, the real pros say, "I know it's not personal. Um, I sunk." You know, um, you know. So you just gotta you gotta con- try to conduct yourself with some fairness, and hopefully, the people you cover will understand that. I. Also tell players all the time um, that, you know, we're out there, we're writing about you, we're trying to tell the fans what's going on with the team, uh, we're covering your ups, your downs, uh, that can be difficult. But the flip side of that is nobody's writing about you. Nobody's writing about your ups and downs. And the day you are not getting attention and the day that people aren't writing about you because – when we're writing about someone, it's just a reflection of the interest that the fans have, right? So the day that people are no, no longer interested in you is the day people stop writing about you. And that's not a good thing for your career. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And if you look at this team, it means you're probably, it means, it means you're, it means you're probably on the way out. So well, it's a tough business, man. I, I have a lot mm. of respect for what these guys, for what these guys do. They're in the fishbowl. Uh, they carry uh, hopes and, uh, of, of, of every sports fan in the town, and when they have a bad day, uh, people are down. I mean, just look at the Phillies over the last week. Um, the, you know, there was a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of distress where they were. They got swept by the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, oh, it's a terrible season. Uh, and all of a sudden, they, they rattle off four straight wins, score 31 runs, they're a game and a half out of first place, and everybody feels better. So it, it can change in a hurry. Well, and don't you think the key to that, Jim, too, is the leadership in this clubhouse? I mean, uh, you know, you covered, you know, you're not covering the team the same way this year, uh, but it's basically the same team as it was last year. Although they bring in a guy like Didi uh, Gregorius, who is uh, a known great clubhouse guy and leader. But really, you just go down that lineup. It's it's McCutcheon, it's Gregorius, it's Jay, a guy like Jay Bruce who's been in the league, who's a great uh, role model, I would think, for the younger players. JT. You got JT, you got 
Bryce. Harper, yeah. Um, I mean, to me, and, and that's why I think, you know, especially this year, I, I think it's the team. Uh, that's why I think Joe Girardi was such an important hire because I think it's the team that has the leadership in the 60-game sprint. Uh, maybe it's the discipline of being on the road and staying in your hotel room and guys policing one another. Uh, but what do you think just in terms of the, the leadership of this club? I love the character on this team, you know, starting with, I, I thought McCutcheon brought a ton of it when he came over uh, prior to the what, 2019 season. Uh, one of the things I really focus on, and I think it's a, kind of a window into the soul of a baseball player, a regular player, a position player, is how they run the bases. Do you run them hard? Do you run them committed? Do you run them smart? Uh, do you do stupid things on the bases? And to me, that is like a window into the soul of a ball player. And, um, McCutcheon's just a great base runner. Even after the injury, he's such a smart base runner. Good jump, runs hard. Bryce Harper, incredible base runner. JT Realmuto, incredible base runner. So that this team is loaded with characters. Uh, from, from Harper and the grit and the toughness and the energy and the effort and the enthusiasm and uh, the way he plays to the to the smarts and the love of the game uh, that that McCutcheon plays with, to the quiet workmanlike uh, attitude of a, of a JT Realmuto, Nola Nola's got that same attitude on the mound. Looks straightforward, quiet, doesn't say a damn thing. But, you know, you look up and it's seven scoreless. So, I, I love the, the makeup of this team. Um, you got a guy like Segura who has the reputation of being um, for not hustling, for pouting a little bit. I mean, you know, this is. Uh, you know, you know, calling it as it is. That's his reputation. He, he bounced around from, from team to team. Uh, not always considered a great clubhouse guy. Um, I look at the way D.D. Gregorius kind of latched on to him from day one of spring training. And, and Segura, to me, looks like a, a model citizen. Um, he made, you know, he went through a position change where he was taken off the kind of the glamour position on the infield, moved over to third base where he'd never played before. Everybody was wondering, oh, how's he going to take it, you know? Because Gene Segura, he can pout a little bit. He's been a model citizen. And I think it's a lot of it's because of the bridge building that Didi has brought to that clubhouse. He, he made Segura his project. And we're going to have fun together. We're going to play on the left side of the infield together. We're going to be good together. Win some ball games together. And we're going to smile together. That, to me, Gregorius fits right in with Ramuto and Harper and McCutcheon yep. in, in, uh, in Nola, in, in the character that you see on this team. Joe has that character. So, they have an offense. They have intangible character. They have, they have a pretty decent starting rotation. Uh, you just hope the bullpen doesn't break their heart because uh, it's such a unique season with 60 games. Uh, 500 probably going to get you in the postseason tournament with 16 teams. Um, you know, I, I see no reason they can't get there with this offense, with enough starting pitching, with the exceptional character. Uh, they might have to make some tweaks in that bullpen, and they're just going to perform better. Very encouraging last night that. Blake Parker, his last couple outings have been very good. And, you know, people rip on the bullpen. I hear it all the time. But, man, like we talked about before, you got to be fair. The bullpen has really done a good job lately. And you didn't mention a, a great story. In fact, a great local story. Uh, but how about that man, Barrels? Barrels Gosselin. Yeah. It's crazy. It's amazing, huh? Well, it's like the Jeter thing. thing he's, he's playing for his home team. So it's uh, it, there's always something special about that. Oh, he, he started his first game at Veterans Stadium. He used to have Darren Dalton pictures in his, uh, in his, in his room at home. Um, I, I can't, I can't even imagine what he, what he's feeling, but 
And it, honestly, it can't happen to a better guy. What a yep. class act that Great guy. guy. Um, yeah, it just, you know, he, he appreciates being a big leaguer. Uh, there's no cockiness. Uh, there's no taking it for granted. Um, and no sense of entitlement with his Phil Goslin. He, it's a great story. Again, I go back to the human story. He, you know, if, if we have a regular 26 man roster, he doesn't even make the team. Mm. If they had a 28 man roster out of camp, out of the summer camp, the restart, he doesn't make the team. He was the last guy to make a 30 man roster. And the only reason he made it was it would have been criminal to keep him off the roster. Um, because that's how well he swung the bat during the July minicamp, whatever you want to call it, at Citizens Night Park. He just, like you said, barreled everything. So he, he makes the team, and he never stops. You know, their first victory of the season hits a couple bombs uh, against the Miami Marlins. And, you know, it's a big story around town. And hasn't stopped hitting uh, after his, you know, essentially what was a tryout. When he, he hit his way into the team, and he's still hitting, as evidence, you know, Tuesday night in Fenway Park. They score seven runs and two outs in the sixth inning to rally. He starts the rally. Joe Girardi makes a great move to pinch hit. Sends him up there. He delivers. Then the next inning hits a home run. Uh, he's hitting like 500. Um, that, you know, when opportunity presents itself, you got you got to seize it, especially when you're like that last man on the roster. Um, you know, you – yeah, they'll be patient with a regular to try to get him going. They ain't going to be patient when you're the last man on the roster. You produce or you go. And Phil Goslin just produces and produces and produces this year. And he's just so humble about it. Uh, if I were Phil Goslin's teammate, I would just be elated at every success he has. And I would root for him every, every moment of the day. Cause, uh, he's, uh, he's a heck of a story and, uh, he's a real humble guy. A nice approach at the plate. Short swing, line drive. Stays, you know, I hate that cliche, stays within himself, but I'll use it. He stays within himself. He's not trying to lift the ball. He's trying to hit a line drive to the middle of the field and you see where it gets him. He's done a great job. Well, Ben Davis is going to give uh, probably the props to Malvern Prep, but I'm going to give the props to University of Virginia. And speaking of Virginia, <laughs> because the University of Virginia is in Charlottesville, one of both of our gym, both of our favorite players uh, is uh, Billy Wagner, and I can't let you go without uh, you telling the Billy Wagner story, because obviously everyone knows that Billy Wagner, one of the hardest throwers ever uh, in Major League Baseball, but you had a unique opportunity in spring training with Billy Wagner. Why don't you tell that story? Wow, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but Billy was you know, one of my all-time favorites. And again, I go back to Billy was one of these guys, the closer. They have thick skin. Most of them do, at least. Um, and Billy was like, Hey, when I think you better write, I think when I'm good, right. I'm good. But when I think you better write, I think. And so, um, Billy was, uh, at one point in his life, the hardest throwing left hand, left-handed man on the planet. And that's fact. And that's incredible considering he wasn't even a natural lefty. He had broke his arm, his right arm as a kid playing touch football, started throwing left-handed. Uh, threw a football left-handed. That built a lot of arm strength. Before you know it, he's throwing baseball left-handed. Becomes a first-round pick. Guy who can throw 100 miles an hour with, with his basically his opposite hand. Just incredible story. But I knew one of the things when Billy came over, it used to rankle him when people said uh, he was just a, a hard thrower, that he was just a thrower, not a pitcher. And that used to really tick him off. And he really worked hard at, at developing a slider. 
and it was a very good slider when once he uh, mastered it. It was what they you know call that back foot slider. It had a lot of bite to it. It was a great weapon for him. One of the reasons that uh, he's one of the greatest closers of all time. A guy who really might end up in the Hall of Fame and certainly deserves serious continued serious Hall of Fame consideration. But you know, I was working at the Inquirer. I'm trying to think of you know a story to write about Billy and. I had done been a catcher when I was a kid and high school and whatnot, Legion. And so uh, I came up with this idea to see if Billy Wagner would let me catch one of his bullpen sessions. And I even came up with a sales pitch. I said, Billy, uh, I even practiced it over the winter. I, said, you know, I was going to say, Billy, I know you've worked hard to become a pitcher, not just a thrower. I would like to try to illustrate that in the story by – you know, taking a little step inside your laboratory, the bullpen, and show people how hard you work, not just on your fastball, but on your slider and on your location, the total package. So I had this sales pitch all ready to go. You know, I rehearsed it all winter, get down to Clearwater, approach Billy, and, you know, I, I was ready to go with my sales pitch. So what would you think if I wanted to catch one of your bullpen sessions? And I'm in mid-sales pitch, and he says, I don't care. If you want to get back there, get back there. <laughs> so I... uh Ran it by Ed Wade, and he was—he was at least—he uh, at least listened to me, and then gradually became on board. I had to sign some legal paperwork. Um, <laughs> Is that right? You had to, uh, yeah, you had to, you had to sign your life away, huh? How about yeah, more life insurance? Did you sign up? Did you sign up for some more life insurance or what? <laughs> Bill Webb. Uh, <laughs> Bill Webb. Lawyer drew up a drew up a waiver, <laughs> and it, right in the waiver, I wrote about it. it said the word death. Yeah, that's <laughs> resulting from a, from a fast Make it feel good. Yeah, so I signed it and I uh, I jumped back there. We did it on I think late in camp because he was going to go back to back days. And I, you know, I'm trying to say, Billy, no, I, I want, I don't want you to hold back. And classic Billy, don't worry, I won't cheat you. Well, <laughs> he didn't cheat me. I think you were out there, right, John? I was out there. Yep. Yeah. So this is 05. I couldn't do it now. My eyes don't work that good. I, my hands would be all right if I had a few weeks to train, but. My eyes. And, uh, you know, the, honestly, it wasn't as hard as people think it was because I put up the mitt. He hit, he hit the mitt. You know, he dotted it. Everything was right there. Mm. I had a little trouble with, with one of the sliders. Uh, but thank goodness he only threw about four of those. And uh, I got heckled. Myers was out there. Ruben Amaro was out there. Jimmy Rollins was out there. Oh, you had a whole crew out I there. Got heckled. Yeah. And, and they're all yeah. hecklers, those guys. You, you just named. They're all. supposed to be. Yeah. It was supposed to be kind of under wraps. Uh, we had a photographer. Rich Doobie was in his first year as pitching coach, and I think he was like, what the hell is this? He, he wasn't really. <laughs> oh, yeah, he loved it. Really that, <laughs> did he it, really that pleased about Jim, it. Jim, he did it hurt your hand? No, it really didn't. Because if you're not a catch and give with baseball and, and absorb a baseball, it really didn't. I borrowed Ramon Henderson's catcher's mitt. Uh, and we made it work. You know, I had, I had the full gear on. That's one thing. You know, when, when a major leaguer throws a bullpen, you guys know this, but, uh, you know, they put their uniform on. There's spikes on. They warm up. They stretch. They, they get stretched by the pin. It's, it's a work day. So, you know, I had the gear on. And, and Billy was very serious because, like I said, it was, he was going back-to-back days, and the season was going to open in a week. And, um, you know, I wrote a story about it. And, yeah, it was one of my favorite stories ever. It was a great thrill. And I'm, I'm always grateful to Billy, you know, for that, um, you know, just a tremendous down-to-earth guy. You know, he, he used to live out by me in Chester County. 
<laughs> he would he would pull his pickup truck off the road and go fishing in the Brandywine on the way to the stadium <laughs> in the Brandywine Creek. He's just a, such a such a regular guy. Uh, really enjoyed that story and, and always enjoyed my my time with Billy Wagner. Um, you know, he used to speak his mind and get on people's nerves a little bit, but man, he was a lot of fun to cover. I, you know, as a writer, you appreciate people who say interesting things and do interesting things on the field. I mean, that's why he's one of my favorites. That's why Jimmy Rollins is one of my favorites. Jimmy did exciting things between the lines, and he spoke from his heart. He was honest, and, you know, he could say something controversial or something insightful, but, man, he was interesting copy, as we say in the sports writing business. Schilling was the same way. You know, all three of those guys, greatness between the lines, and they they would speak their mind after the game. Um, so as a, as, a, as a baseball writer... Uh, they were, you know, interesting guys to cover, fun guys to cover, compelling guys to cover because, you know, you felt like people were going to read your stuff when, when you were writing about those guys. Uh, so really enjoyed those guys with a host of others. Yeah. And Billy respected and appreciated the media. I was with him when uh, when we all remember the whole, he took the whole um, beat writer crew out to Villa Galachi down in spring training that one year. I actually was not there, so I'm looking for a rain check on that. There you go. There you go. <laughs> what a great place. Oh, that's the, the ultimate down there. Uh, Jim, before we let you go, uh, we here at Phillies Backstage, uh, we subject you to a John Brazier-made quiz. And I and you, you hear I said John Brazier. So I always distance myself from this, <laughs> this quiz as much as possible. But, John, I'm going to turn it over to you. And this is basically what? The, uh, the life of Jim Salisbury. You're going to quiz him on yes, himself, right? This should all be, all, most of these questions have some relevance to you, obviously. So you should have a good chance of getting, and they're multiple choice too. So we're going to, uh, oh we, we, the bar we usually say is we, it's eight questions and we, we think you should be able to get six out of eight. So that's what you're aspiring to. Yes. And our, our, our prize closet is kind of, you, you'll uh, get something fanatic related. <laughs> yeah. The fanatic uh, will shoot you a hot dog. Finally, <laughs> we'll finally reach you in, in Clearwater next year. Maybe. <laughs> that was we used to have a lot of fun with that. I, I could always, it's funny, I could tell by your body, uh, the, you know, the fanatic's body language that he was aiming to the press box and we'd all stand up and look for a, I actually caught one at Three Rivers Stadium once. They, they were shooting hot dogs way back when. I actually caught one. And it kind of it kind of got all squished between my fingers. It was really gross. Did you eat it? It was in the early days of hot dog launchers. Yeah. Wait, did, did you eat that hot dog, though? No, I, I didn't because it really it it, it turned to like uh, minced meat. Right. Yeah, that's what happens. It, it hit my hand with a lot of impact. <laughs> so, no, I didn't eat it. One of the few things I didn't eat. I think Todd Zalecki's the only guy to catch one down in Clearwater, and uh, yeah, he didn't eat it either. I mean, when you're shooting these things, it's going, coming out at 300 psi. They, <laughs> if they don't disintegrate, uh, yeah, you still don't want to eat what you catch. Right. All right. One of John, my favorite. Day, one of my favorite days. I got it. But one of my favorite days in Clearwater was the day just a couple of years ago that Joey Bass and you were doing the push up. Oh yeah, yeah, Batista. Yes, yes. One, he did so the one, he, he showed was, him up with a one-handed push-up. Yeah, he couldn't do it. He was a great. He was a he was a great sport about that. Yeah, I, you, I've always wondered yeah. like is, is the is the fanatic actually 
talking to the guy then, like egging him on, or is it all body language? Well, we've already broken a few rules on this podcast talking about the uh, fanatic in third person. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna comment either way on that. Only to say that uh, it's very all that stuff's always spontaneous, and it's all the player. I mean, if the player's ready to fool around, the fanatic is ready to fool around too. And uh, Batista was great. Yeah, and he he always has been. We we had a, a couple run-ins, and especially in spring training, and uh, and of course you know Jim life's in spring training is usually a little bit more laid back and uh, the players, um, you know, feel that too. And so it's, it's kind of a fun time for the fanatic. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, the fanatic, I mean, sometimes I just sit there and look at him. I get mesmerized. He just makes me laugh so hard. So you can tell him that. I will tell him that. Jim, my favorite before we get to the quiz is watching. And unfortunately we don't get this now, but watching the fanatic do uh, the lineups when Dan Baker does the lineups, and the fanatic imitates uh, the, our own players. It's the best. Well, they did. Oh, pick, yeah. they did pick up the fanatic doing uh, Walker. Neil Walker came into the game, and, and they, used they did a replay <laughs> of the fanatic pretending like he was using a Walker on top of the dugout. So uh, <laughs> at least somebody's watching. <laughs> somebody's the fanatic, watching. The fanatic. The fanatic always. Uh, you know, I, I always think the fanatic kind of sucks up to the guys with the big muscles, and he always makes fun of the short guys. Look at that. <laughs> that's, that is that's true. Short and fat guys. And if they're bald, too, that's the trifecta right there. Jim, my, fam- my, my, favorite, my favorite one is a guy who's actually having a uh, – I believe he was at least. I haven't followed him recently, but he's having a little bit of a resurgence in San Francisco. But Darren Ruff – uh, the first time Darren Rupp was in the starting lineup, the fanatic gets on all fours and crawls over to his four wheeler and lifts up his right leg to <laughs> relieve himself. Was Darren Rupp. That's right. I remember that. I remember that. I think he, I think the fanatic might have gotten in trouble for that. Maybe. That was a good one, though. The fanatic's not doing like, his job if he's not getting in trouble. You know what? That's what they say about uh, a good journalist. If you're not pissing off people now and then, you're not doing your job. Right. It's like a third base coach. If you don't get a guy thrown right. out now and then, you're not being aggr- you're not being aggressive enough. So, yeah, you got to you got. And when the, sometimes they'll call up a player and the fanatic during the introduction, he'll struggle. Like I have no idea who the hell this guy is. <laughs> well, Todd Todd Pratt got really upset at the fanatic because on Sundays the fanatic's routine would it usually would be the backup catcher. Pitch, you know, playing on yeah, Sunday because it's a day game following a night game. And so the Fanatic would have the same thing for all the backup catch would, would be like, you know, shrug his shoulders saying, Darren Dalton's not in or yeah, he you know, whoever the, the Fanatic about that. Eddie, like, oh, you know, he was batting like three. He had a great year in 93, Todd Pratt, actually, as a fill in for Dutch. But uh, yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't very happy. happy. Yeah. People should know who I am. So, so uh, you know, the Fanatic, after all these years, the Fanatic is sports writer. You have to deal. You have to tell people it ain't personal. It's just my observation. That's exactly right. And then, well, then the fanatic switched to he has a big head, you know, tank, you know, his big head. So he, I think he was doing the Bruce Bochy big head thing for Todd Pratt. <laughs> All right, that'll Jim. teach you. That'll teach you. Really All right, we, All right. Here's the quiz. Go ahead, six John. out of eight. Six out okay? of eight. Okay, and again, it's tailored to your life. Okay, number one, uh, you went to Providence, right? Providence in Rhode Island. I did. Uh, which celebrity did not? Go to Providence. I'm going to name four celebrities. One of them did not go to Providence. All right. A, uh, actress, comedian uh, Janine Garofalo, sports analyst Doris Burke, Hollywood Square's center square Paul Lind, or actor John O'Hurley, who played Jay Peterman on uh, Seinfeld. <laughs> well, um, I know the answer to that. Paul Lind. Paul. <laughs> two, of those, two of those were in, I graduated with two of those. They were... And uh, really, Janine Garofalo was in some of my classes. Did you know her? She's a really smart one. 
Yeah, did I can't you? say I did, but uh-huh. I remember her in my classes. So How about I that? Was an English major. I was always a fan. I was an English major. Nice. All right, you got She's, your. Uh, definitely, I definitely remember her in some of my classes. Huh. All right, you were one and for I remember, one. I remember watching. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, what, was she funny though? I, I don't remember that. Uh, I, you know, but I definitely remember her in some of my classes, and I remember watching Doris Burke play uh, play point guard for the Providence women's team. There you go. All right. Yeah. As we mentioned, you are also from Rhode Island. So which film was not shot in Rhode Island? Okay. A, Dumb and Dumber. B, Jaws. C, Meet Joe Black. D, Dan in Real Life. Jeez. A, Dumb and Dumber. B, Jaws. C, Meet Joe Black. D, Dan in Real Life. So you're saying three of those were shot in Rhode Island? Yep. And one was not. Well, Jaws was shot in Nantucket. That's Massachusetts. Yeah. Well, Martha's Vineyard. So am I right? You are right. Bang. Jaws. Martha's Vineyard, yes. Bang. All right. Two for two. You're All right. Now, some people have called you Barney Rubble, correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've been called. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> I, I, I think people said I look like him. All right. So because you look like him, name the occupation that Barney Rubble never held. Okay. Huh. A bouncer, B furniture reprocessor, C police officer, D crane <laughs> operator. So you have bouncer, furniture reprocessor, police officer, and crane operator. Which one was he? What he never held? Bouncer. Of course, Barney <laughs> Rubble could never be a bouncer, right? He, <laughs> he was. He was. He was. He was inside the place making trouble. Exactly, exactly right. All right, you are three for three. three All right, for we three. we mentioned Billy Wagner. Uh, he set a single season NCAA record for strikeouts per nine with 19 and a third in 1992, and fewest hits allowed per nine with 1.88. Where did he go to college? Was it VMI, James Madison, Randolph Macon, or Ferrum College? He went to Ferrum. Ferrum College. Ferrum. Jim, where's that? It's in Virginia. They're all in Virginia. Oh, how about that? Yep. Ferrum. Never heard Ferrum, of it. Ferrum, yep. Hmm. All right. Four for four. You're on a roll. All right. Uh, I understand you are a fan of uh, Guy Frieri's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives show, right? Uh, a big fan. Big fan. All right. Well, then maybe you should that's, know this. That's, that's, like, that's like my dream job. Uh, <laughs> which? Because you are a big Hoagie Fest fan too, right? That's one of your favorites? Uh, which Philly oh, restaurant yeah, was not featured was not featured in Guy Frieri's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dive Show? Okay, so I'm gonna name four four of these places. Three of them were covered in this show at one point. One was not. Uh, a South Philly Tap Room, the best grilled cheese uh, sandwich in Philadelphia, yep. and tomato soup. Uh, Jamaican Jerk Hut, Bob and Barbara's Lounge, Stogie Joe's Tavern. So is it? A, South Philly Tap Room, B, Jamaican Jerk Hut, C, Bob and Barbara's Lounge on South Street, or D, Stogie Joe's Tavern? Well, the first two I think were on. I remember seeing the South Street. Uh, boy, it's got to be one of the last two, right? Yep, Stogie I'll Joe's on Pashyuk. I'll say... Hmm. Or Bob and Barbara's know, Lounge. Bob, Bob and Barbara's Lounge or Stogie Joe's Tavern? I have to flip a coin and say Stogie Joe's. Nope. You missed Bob and Barber's. All right. You got that one wrong. All right. Three more. You are a Big Bang Theory fan as well, I understand, right? So what what breed of what breed of dog does Raj have, right? Does he own? Is it A a Cavachon, B a Golden Retriever, C a Maltese, or D a Yorkshire Terrier? Oh man. I have no idea. 
My oh, wife got this. My wife got this one. I'll say you. I'll say your. You got it. Oh, you there got it. Is. Bang. Nice guess. Total all right, guess, you, you are on a roll. Five out of six. Uh, all right. He went to Temple. Didn't he go to Didn't he go to Temple? Raj, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Temple I'm guy. I'm telling you so. I think you went. I think you should look that up, John. All right. Well, I will after this. <laughs> Two more questions. Uh, you mentioned Carl Yastrzemski, right? Uh, oh yeah. True. True or false? Carl Yastrzemski once hit an All-Star Game home run without a batting helmet. Uh, true or false? I have no idea. And now, you might be getting technical because I think early in his career, he might have wore one of those inserts, you know? Um, so I'll say true. True is correct. Yeah. He actually he went up with a baseball just a baseball hat. For some reason, they let him do it. Huh. 1975, he had a pinch hit three-run home run off Tom Seaver in the sixth inning. So there you have it. All right. You are with now a regular s- hat on in 75? With a regular hat on, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Jeez, that's well into the... That's well into the helmet era. Yeah, he's the Gump Worsley of, uh, of baseball. Or a goaltender that never wore, oh. you know, those goaltenders never wore a never mask. Never the helmet. I, I never fat. Well, yeah, it's crazy. All right, last question. The Gumper. You are doing very Can well here. What, what, what was Gump Worsley's real name, real first name? I don't know. Larry? Fred? Close. <laughs> Hank? His real first name was Lorne. Lorne, L-O-R-N-E. Huh. Lorne Worsley. Lorne Worsley. All right. There you, see, you don't oh, yeah, get that love, information on any other podcast, <laughs> right? All right. Last, last. I, we've never had anybody go eight for eight, and very few have gone seven for eight. But right, Tom? Jim is on the verge of going seven for eight. He's he, going to nail he's this He's going to be at one. the top of the list, this list if he can get this, and he should be able to get this because he works with this guy uh, all the time and for many years, okay? Where did Michael Barkan grow up, Okay. Uh, is it, do you know the answer already? I believe I know the answer, but I'll just wait to. Okay. <laughs> Where did Michael Barkan grow up? Was it A, East Brunswick, New Jersey, B, Garden City, New York, C, Bernardsville, New Jersey, or D, Oyster Bay, New York? Uh, East Brunswick, New Jersey. That is correct. And Jim <sighs> Salisbury went seven for eight on top of the, of the all-time leaderboard. Very good. Congratulations. Nicely done, Jim. Thank you. We- I'm um, I'm, I'm, uh, do I have to give a speech? No, no, that's no, all right. No, but you'll get, it, you'll, you'll get an unknown fanatic item at some point. That's right. Or a hot dog thrown your way next spring training. That's right. <laughs> Jim, right. Th- thank you very much for joining us. Uh, great to have you on our podcast. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, hey, uh, try to stay awake during these late night Zoom interviews. Rob Brooks said he might have seen you doze off a little bit last night, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with the four-hour game, he said, ask Jim Salisbury, was he starting to fall asleep in that Zoom interview? <laughs> no, I just kind of, like, sometimes I stare at the ceiling. <laughs> and Jim, if, if, I if, kind of listen to, listen to the answer. If listeners want to follow you, how do they follow you? So, um, well, on NBCSportsPhiladelphia.com, uh, that's our website. And you can go on there and, and read all about the Flyers and the Sixers. And the Eagles, uh, Jordan Hall covers the uh, Flyers for us. He's the brother of Jameson Hall, who is the Phillies traveling secretary. So uh, two great guys there. But you can follow the Sixers, the Flyers, Eagles with uh, Ruben Frank and Dave Zangao, and uh, the Phillies with myself and Corey Seidman at NBCSportsPhiladelphia.com. And uh, have a Twitter, which is uh, Jay Salisbury, NBCSP. And uh, you can... 
check us out there. Awesome. And we do. We read you every day, Jim. We love you. And uh, thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm going to have uh, you hang up right now because I'm, I'm staring at this uh, soundboard that we're trying to figure out for the first time. So I think if you hang up, we'll, uh, John and I will sign off. All right. Um, hold on. Does this sound like I'm hanging up? <laughs> yeah. I think you just Jim is out of here. He's on a long drive. That was, that was great. I mean, I'm just, uh, so, uh, you know, it's amazing. These guys, they just crank it out every day. How do they do it, John? Well, I think about how it. in college we had to do a deadline, you know, for a yeah, paper deadline. that we blew off to the last night. He's got to right. do it in real time. And then as he said, I'd be like, you're, again, you have a paper written in college. And all of a sudden the teacher says, right when you're almost finished, finished the paper, uh, they said, "Oh, it's not this. Is, this paper's not on Shakespeare. You got to do one on, on <laughs> yeah, Charles right, Dickens, yeah. and, yeah, and you yeah. got to change everything up again." Yeah, no, it is. It's it's awesome. But uh, great, Jim could join us. John, this was great. I think uh, technically we did pretty good. Now I'm going to try to uh, have our theme song play us out. All right, if I hit the right button, I, I should be able to I do this. I think you can handle it, Tom. <laughs> All right. I think it's that one big button right and we, there. And, maybe, and we might have Jason Stark on next week. Yeah, nice, nice. All right, John, thanks for uh, being here, and uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Bye-bye.